Last Wednesday was a day of very mixed emotions in Australia. On behalf of the Australian government, Prime Minister Kevin Rudd made a formal apology in Parliament for the past wrongs caused by successive governments through laws and policies that, and I quote, inflicted profound grief, suffering and loss on the indigenous Aboriginal population. He singled out the stolen generations of thousands of children forcibly removed from their families. The apology beamed live on television around Australia was met with a standing ovation in Parliament and by the watching crowds. But the cheers were also mingled with tears, not least on the part of those who had suffered for so long. Truly, a day of mixed emotions. 2,000 years ago, there was an even more significant day of mixed emotions in the city of Jerusalem. That day, which Christians now call Palm Sunday, began with rejoicing as Jesus approached the city, welcomed by cheering crowds, but it was followed with him weeping over a city that was doomed, over inhabitants that would be destroyed. So, as we continue our series, Good News, Great Joy for All People, look, at, look with me at the events that were read to us by Kirsty in Luke's Gospel, a day of mixed emotions. It will help to have the Bible in front of you. If you've not been here before, we try and understand what the Bible still says to us today with God's help and then to put it into practice. So to make sure I'm sticking with the text and you're following where we're going, would help to have a Bible. There are Bibles in the pews, just, just borrow one if you haven't got one. And it's Luke 19, uh, verses 28 to 44. It's page 1054 uh, in, the, in the pew Bibles. So let's begin, as the day itself does, with rejoicing, verses 28 through to 40. If you've been with us in this series, you'll know that uh, for many weeks and months now, Jesus has been slowly but surely heading for his final destination. He's on a journey. And the ultimate destination is the city of Jerusalem. In five days' time the journey will end outside the city of Jerusalem in just five days' time as Jesus is taken as a common criminal and nailed to a cross. But such a prospect would have been inconceivable this Sunday before Good Friday. To the cheering crowds, inconceivable even to the disciples of Jesus who'd been with him for three years and to whom he told already what was going to happen. However, nothing happens to Jesus by accident. He is following the divine agenda for every step of the journey. There are no mistakes on this journey. The other week we went, Friday, Nietzsche and I went to Musselburgh to see George and Margaret Lenny to wish them well on their golden wedding. I hate Musselburgh. I just always get lost. So, if anyone 
feels led of God to give me one of those sat-navs that that tell you where to go and the nice lady's voice says, turn right here. And even when you make a mistake, it doesn't even say, no, you idiot, go back. It just says, turn right at the next turn or even make a U-turn in the road. Rodney's got one. But he does a lot more visiting than me. But uh, it's easy to make mistakes, isn't it, on journeys. But there are no mistakes for Jesus. Every step is marked out carefully. He is following, without distraction, the distractions we have as fallen human beings. He's following the divine agenda, step by step. And people will think there's a big, big mistake coming up. But he's following the plan carefully. We'll see that in a moment. He's following the Father's plan. So notice in the reading as it begins, Luke records, Jesus went on ahead going to Jerusalem. Going up to Jerusalem. He led from the front. He didn't let the disciples run off down the road and then follow after them. No, he's the leader. They're the followers. He's leading the way, going up to the city now. If you've ever been to Israel, you'll know that you always go up to Jerusalem because it's up. Like many capital cities, it's on the highest point, on on Mount Zion. Uh, And he enters from the east over a range of hills surmounted by what's called the Mount of Olives. Those Jews who knew their Old Testament, their own Hebrew scriptures, uh, would know the Mount of Olives, a very significant place. Uh, Hundreds of years before, the prophet Zechariah had said, the Messiah would stand on the Mount of Olives. Whether anyone really understood, that's not clear, and and Luke doesn't make anything of it here. Uh, But eventually they reached the summit. For those who are interested in these kind of things, it's 2,660 feet above sea level. And if you're here this morning, you'll know that Colin was speaking about the previous parable. It's about a king going away and coming to back from a distant country to be crowned. Well, he's already been crowned. He's coming back to be welcomed. Uh, But the point of the parable is that the kingdom of God is not going to happen immediately. And it's certainly not going to happen in the way that people expect. On one level, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, it looks like a conquering king entering his capital city. Now, the arrival of a dignitary in any place, let alone the crowning of a king, is always a carefully choreographed event. Uh, Many years ago, I lived in India. I lived in right in the middle of India in a city called Nagpur, which is which is one of the hottest places on earth. And one particular time, the Prime Minister then, Indira Gandhi, uh, announced that she was coming to visit Nagpur. Now, it's not a very smart city. It's not a very tidy and clean city, but believe me, in the weeks leading up to her arrival, everything was spruced up, everything was cleaned up, the streets were swept, they even painted, you know, uh, whitewash on the pavements at the side, the beggars were removed, and everybody lined the route with cheering citizens. Now you would think Jesus is entering Jerusalem. Uh, There's no special welcome committee. Nobody's been planning this for, for months before. Jesus is coming. Let's get together. But there is a divine plan in place. There is a plan in place. And as you read the story, notice carefully how everything fits into place. There's nobody out of place. Well, there's one group out of place only in this wonderful day uh, that we call Palm Sunday. Uh, As you get to the top of the Mount of Olives, there are two villages nearby. Uh, One's called Bethany, which is about one and a half miles from the city. The other one's called Bethphag, or literally Bethphage, 
Uh, and nobody knows exactly where it is today, so I won't spend a lot of time trying to tell you where it is, but it's somewhere nearby, anyway. Uh, Jesus sends two of his disciples uh, to one of these villages, probably Bethany, and, and as he does, we discover some very interesting transport has already been arranged for the king. He tells them, go into the village and you'll find a colt tied up there. Um, Matthew's Gospel, all four Gospels tell this story with different angles and different information. Uh, Matthew tells us uh, that there's a donkey with the colt, the mother is there as well. And Jesus says, when you get there, you'll see this donkey tied up, just untie it and bring it back. And he says, if anybody asks, hi, what are you doing with that donkey? Just say to them, the Lord needs him. And sure enough, the disciples follow the instructions. They go off into the, uh, into the little village and there they see this donkey tied up. Hitched to a rail somewhere probably. And they untie it and as they're doing it, the owners are sitting by and they say, Hey, just a minute, what are you doing with that donkey? And they say, the Lord needs him. And they say, okay, that's fine. Now, this may sound rather mysterious, but almost certainly this has all been prearranged before. If you know the Gospel stories, you remember a bit later on, we'll see it in Luke's Gospel, that when Jesus tells his disciples to go and get the room ready for the Passover, uh, he says, go into the city and you follow a man, it's a bit like a spy story, follow a man with a water jar on his head, because men didn't usually have water jars on their heads. The women did all that kind of stuff. Uh, and he says, do it. Now, it seems here that Jesus has already got everything planned and in place. Uh, the word Lord, the Lord has need of him, it uh, can just be the word used for a master or someone in authority, but here's Jesus. We read a different meaning into it. The Lord Jesus needs him. This donkey is going to be used on the king's business. And, and notice the authority extends not only to the owners of the animal who happily release him, him, her, cult, yes, him, um, uh, but it's never been ridden before. I don't know much about riding donkeys or horses. I once tried to ride a horse, but as I went up, it went down, and, and we just didn't get along together. But I'm sure, I'm sure uh, riding a donkey that's never been written on before is not an easy exercise. But even the donkey's in on the plot here. The donkey is obedient to the instructions. And the donkey has no objection when people throw cloaks on its back as a kind of makeshift saddle. And Jesus is seated on its back. So, here's the story, here's the plan, here's the cult carrying the king. Now, I'd be interested to know, when you read a story about somebody riding on a donkey, what do you think of? Again, from my background, most of the time I thought about donkeys was children and seaside. You know donkey rides at seaside? Do they used to have them at Portobello, I don't Do they still have them? Anyway, it's irrelevant. But, um, but you, you can read this wrongly. Um, if you know the Old Testament, uh, you remember when King David was very old and uh, there was a rebellion and, and, and uh, it looked as though uh, the wrong man was going to be made king. So, so David arranges for Solomon, the chosen one, to succeed him and it says they put him on the king's mule. The king had a donkey, a special royal mule. I don't, don't think the queen's got one. You know, imagine the queen on a royal mule. Well, that's what they did in those days. Uh, off for coronation. However, the, what there is, is a very clear contrast here. Remember, this is the time when the Roman authorities are occupying Israel. And they didn't ride in on donkeys. No, they rode in in chariots and big white horses. 
conquering kings. Now, everybody who was hoping that the kingdom of God was going to come in at this time, imagine that when Jesus the king comes in, he'll be riding on one of those big horses. But instead, he doesn't. They expect their Messiah to ride in and rid them of the hated Romans. If, you can't, if you're going to beat them, you've got to use the same kind of uh, carriages that they use. But you see, Jesus is a different kind of king. Uh, Luke, unlike Matthew, because uh, Luke's written uh, not for Jews, Matthew is written for Jews, Matthew highlights the fact there's another prophecy being fulfilled here. Again, from Zechariah, one of those little books at the end of the, our Old Testament. Uh, Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation. Gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Uh, whether many of the people connected this in their own minds with this prophecy is again unclear. But what is clear is their response. So notice secondly after the cult carrying the king, here's the crowd welcoming the king. It's an amazing scene, isn't it? You can sort of visualise it in your mind's eye, I think. Uh, as Jesus goes along the road, the people spread their cloaks on the road. It's, it's a kind of first century equivalent of a red carpet treatment. And as Jesus goes down from the Mount of Olives, right, he's coming down now from the summit, the crowd begins to grow. Now, now John in his gospel tells us uh, there's a huge crowd in the city for the festival of Passover, the great festival of Passover. And they see what is happening. And a crowd comes out of the city at the same time as this growing crowd comes into the city. We don't, there doesn't seem to be much crowd control here. There are no policemen lining the routes to keep everybody in line. Uh, but there's this sort of mass crowd of people. And the praise begins to swell as people recognize who it is. It's Jesus, the one who's done all these amazing miracles. And, and just recently, the rumor has gone around that Jesus has done the most amazing miracle of all. A man called Lazarus, who has been dead in the grave for four days, has been raised to life and has come out alive again. And although the crowds are in the, uh, in the city for the great Passover festival, uh, what follows is more akin to another festival, the one that's called Tabernacles, that's celebrated when the Israelites uh, lived in tents uh, for a long period before they settled in the Promised Land. Uh, and that was associated with waving palm branches and shouting this word, Hosanna. Now again, Luke doesn't mention this. The reason is that Luke is written for Gentiles. They wouldn't understand it. Matthew, written for Jews, tells us, uh, we read it at the beginning, that they waved palm branches. Uh, it was a kind of thing, you know, and kind of, instead of waving flags, you waved palm branches, and you shouted out, Hosanna, which is Hebrew for, save now. Save us, Lord. Yes, it's a sort of, you know, cheer, you know, wonderful cheer. Uh, and the psalm associated with tabernacles in, in Jewish worship was Psalm 118. It's a psalm well worth reading. It's the one that says, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. There's all sorts of things in there. And this particular verse, they begin to pick up as a chorus. You know, like we've been singing together. You know, you start off the chorus and everybody begins to sing and shout. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in, earth, in heaven and glory in the highest. Psalm 118 verse 26. Now, how much the crowd really understand? It's maybe one of those occasions where crowds get carried away by a few enthusiasts. The disciples start it off and everybody begins to join in. And there's this tumultuous scene. Uh, the crowd will soon change their tune, many of them. 
But at this moment, they're doing exactly the right thing. They're following the script. They're behaving as they should, because the king is coming into his city. Their response to God's king is wholly appropriate to everyone except one group, the critics, who reject the king. Verses 39 to 40. These Jewish religious leaders who have rejected Jesus constantly throughout his uh, ministry of three years are horrified when they hear the crowd addressing Jesus in terms that were restricted to God. And they appeal to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, tell them off, tell them to stop, it's not appropriate. But rather than rebuking the crowd, Jesus rebukes them. Now, if you've been with us in this series, you'll know that up until this point in the story, Jesus has been very careful about people broadcasting his true identity. It's what scholars call the messianic secret. He didn't want people to know ahead of time who he really was, otherwise it might have derailed the program. But now the program is here. There is nothing to be lost, everything to be gained. Now the time is here. Praising the king is the only appropriate response. So Jesus replies to them, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. In his commentary on Luke, the American Darrell Bock writes, inanimate objects have a better perception of what God is doing than do the people Jesus came to serve. Now before we move from this rejoicing section, I need to pause for a moment. The question is, what kind of perception do you and I have of who Jesus really is? Of what God has done through his chosen one, Jesus. The litmus test is this. Can we truly, wholeheartedly, enthusiastically rejoice and praise the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, put it in personal terms. For, forget the style of the songs that we sang at the beginning. If you're here this morning, we sang some more traditional hymns. And we'll sing a very traditional one to conclude in a few moments' time. A little time. Uh, but... Forget the, forget the style and everything else, but, but ask yourself, when people sing the praise of Jesus, does your heart rise with praise and thanksgiving? Do you enthusiastically say, yeah, that's, there's nothing I want to do more than praise the Lord Jesus Christ. He's my King. He's my Lord. He means everything to me. Or do you kind of think, this is kind of a bit embarrassing. You know, it's a bit emotional. And I don't mind waving palm branches. I want to two wacky people waving their hands around. Even so, the pastor did it the other week. Something gone wrong with him, you know. Um, you know. Now, all of that is to do with style. Don't worry about that. But what I'm saying is, in whatever way, do we wholeheartedly, enthusiastically, gladly, I just can't put in any other words, do we praise Jesus? Are you in the rejoicing group? Or if you're not embarrassed, you say, well, that's a, it's a bit OTT, you know. Um, you know, I don't mind people doing it, but it's not my style. And, you know, it's, it's a bit... Can you, can you overpraise Jesus? Can you give him too much enthusiasm and praise and worship? You know, some of us are more enthusiastic about our football teams than we are about Jesus. Some of us are more excited about other kinds of music than, that doesn't mean you can't be excited about other kinds of music, but we're more excited about other kinds of music than we are about praising Jesus, singing his praise and thanking him. Are we in the rejoicing crowd? Do we praise King Jesus? Because he came to save us. This is what his agenda is about. This is his purpose. We'll see this in a moment. 
He's come to save us from God's judgment that we deserve because of the way we live. The king is coming. We're the rebels. And he offers us a chance to lay down our arms and submit to him. Now, unless we do, like those critics, we face the consequences of our sin. We face God's judgment. And God's greatest judgment is on those who reject his chosen king. Despite all the evidence from the miracles he did to the prophecies he fulfilled in every last detail. And this is what Jesus knows because we read these, these, these awful verses that follow. Some of the saddest verses in the Gospels. Knowing what his people have done and what awaits them causes immense grief to Jesus. And his mood changes. The mood of the story changes from rejoicing to weeping. Verses 41 to 44. Now, imagine the scene again for a moment. As the crowd broaches the summit of the hill, Jerusalem can be seen over the Kidron Valley in all its splendour. The magnificent temple built by Solomon. The city walls. The people going about their business. It's the city of God. God's chosen city. God's chosen people. And when Jesus looks over the city of Jerusalem, Luke tells us he wept over it. Now, the word translated wept is a very strong word. It, it, it is not the sort of word we think of when we say weep. You know, somebody weeps, you know, and they're sort of, they're a little bit choked and they take oh, glasses in those days, but you know, they dab the corner of their eye and it's a little bit upsetting. No, the word used here of Jesus weeping is a word of deep and intense grief. Like a mourner at the unexpected death of a loved one. It's the heart-wrenching wailing of deep, deep grief. If you were with us in the series in Jeremiah, it's the same scene in Jeremiah 6 of Jeremiah on this, outside this same city, seeing the same thing happening, weeping over God's chosen city and God's people who've rejected him. It's an amazing thing to think. We worship a God who weeps. We worship a God who weeps. A God who feels. A God who is not remote, impassive, unmoved by the mess in our world and the mess in your life. It's a God who weeps when he sees us rejecting his son Jesus and all the consequences that lie ahead of us. So let's just look a little bit more carefully at why Jesus weeps. His words recorded by Luke give us the answer. First of all, Jesus weeps over a lost, a missed opportunity. If only, he says. You know, a number of times we say in our lives, if only. If only I'd done that. If only I'd applied for that job. If only I'd filled in that form. If only I'd made that other decision in my life. You see, what the people of Israel had longed for and prayed for, who the people of Israel had longed for and prayed for, it's here. It's all happening in front of their eyes. The greatest drama in human history. God has come to earth in the person of his son. The chosen Messiah, the anointed one, is here. And the people of Israel fail to recognize and acknowledge him. And in doing so, they are rejecting God's peace terms which he came to bring. Look again at the words of Jesus. God's peace terms rejected. If you... Even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. 
Why did Jesus come to earth? Well, the angels at his birth in Luke's Gospel, way back, this is number 40, by the way, in our series, uh, but right back at the beginning, Christmas story, shepherds on the hills, angels sing a song, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men on whom his favour rests. The crowds are right, they echo the words of the psalm, peace in heaven, glory in the highest, but they fail to understand their own words. The real peace agreement that is needed is peace in heaven, peace between God and men and women. And that is what Jesus has come to bring. He's come to bring peace. He's offering God's peace terms to a rebellious world and population. And they reject him and they reject God's peace terms. It's a missed opportunity. But there's an even greater tragedy. Jesus weeps not only over a missed opportunity, but also over a lost opportunity. If only, but now. Now look very carefully. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Verse 42. God's peace terms, when they're rejected, mean inevitably God's judgment. Expected. Jesus says, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another. It's a classic description of a siege and the destruction of a city. Now, if you've ever studied the Bible, you'll know that the critics say, this proves that there's no such thing as predictive prophecy, so this proves that this was written long afterwards, and it's just a made-up story. Um, not many people, well, let's put it this way, a smaller number of people believe that now, because many people believe if this was written after the event, the details would have been far more precise. Jesus knows the future. <clears throat> he knows what's happening. As Jesus looks across the valley to Jerusalem, he does not see a great city in all its splendor, surmounted by a glorious temple, but a smoldering pile of rubble with not one stone left upon another. He sees not a prosperous people going about their business, but bodies of men, women and children lying in the streets with an unenviable fate for the survivors. Luke records, if you've been with us in this series, his previous visit to the same city previous opportunities ignored. This is what he said last time he saw this city. Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now here he is fulfilling what he said. His words are being fulfilled. But will you notice something has changed? Something vitally important. You were not willing has now become you are not able. You will not see has now become you cannot see. You see, hearts that harden themselves against God become hearts that God finally hardens. I will not believe becomes finally fixed. I cannot believe that awful moment where the line is crossed, it is too late and there is no going back. Now this is a matter of the utmost seriousness if you're not a Christian this evening. If until now you've never bowed the knee to Jesus. Because notice something very important. What Jesus prophesies here 
will be fulfilled in AD 70 when the Roman general Titus marches into Jerusalem and reduces it to rubble after a terrible siege. There are still 40 years to go before the prophecy is fulfilled, but already now it is too late. Let me say it again. There are 40 more years before the prophecy will be fulfilled, but already now it is too late because these people cannot see, they will not see, they have hardened their hearts, and all that waits now is God's judgment. You see, we tend to think, ah, God's judgment is when I have my last chance. Yeah, you're right, I'm not a Christian, but I've got it all worked out, you know? When I'm on my deathbed and the doctor gives me the final prognosis and says, you've got two weeks to live, I'll call Peter Granger, whoever's the pastor in those days or whatever, and I'll say, come round, I'd like to receive Jesus, my own Lord and Savior, and I'll get into heaven and that'll be it. Listen, let me say two things. One is, you may not get two weeks notice. You may just, I'm not being pessimistic here. But, but vitally important, far more important, and likely is, that at that point, you will not want to ring Peter and Granger and put your life right or the pastor and get your life straightened out. Because you become hardened. You're no longer interested. Listen, I talk to people who are in this situation. Rodney talks to them. And you plead with them. You say, Rodney will tell you, go to hospital. He said to some guy, you've not got long to live. You've got a chance. Are you not going to put your life right with Jesus? Nah. Not interested. But there may have been a moment when they sat in a church like this, heard the good news of Jesus Christ, their hearts were touched, and they said, I need to respond to this good news. And they said, no, I'm not going to do it. And they turned their back away. And eventually, and only God knows when, there comes a line that we cross, and a missed opportunity becomes a lost opportunity. And that's why Jesus weeps over the deep anguish because it's all so ne- unnecessary. If only, he says. If only on the day of judgment. If only. But now it's too late. Before the day of judgment. Because judgment is certain. You see, this story highlights divine sovereignty. All the details have been worked out by Jesus. But notice something else. It also highlights human responsibility. Because God will not impose himself on you. He will not grab you by the lapels and thrust you into his kingdom. In his sovereignty, he allows you to respond to his grace. And it's your call at this point. Here is no impassive God, but a God who deeply cares. A saviour who weeps when we go our own way. But Jesus not only weeps, he also acts. You see, It's the point of the story. The king is going to come for his kingdom, but not yet. If you're reading the script, you think, "Uh uh-oh, there's something wrong here. The the story's gone wrong. The plot line's been messed up by these people. They've rejected the king. And now it's, it's just frustrated the whole plan of God. Not at all. And God in his sovereignty is not frustrated by human responsibility. In this amazing way, he uses even our waywardness to achieve his plans. He makes the wrath of man to praise him. The divine plan is still in place. Jesus doesn't say at this point, "Uh oh, they've blown it, better go back to heaven. See if there's a plan B in place somewhere. No, there's only one plan, it's plan A. And he's following it in every detail. And Jesus follows it, and he goes into the city... And finally, in five days' time, he will be led out of the city. 
and he'll be nailed to a cross. His enemies think it's a victory. His disciples think it's a tragedy. But in fact, it's a triumph. For on that cross, he bears the judgment we deserve. Why? To bring us peace with God. Apostle Paul writes in Christians in Rome, Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through trusting in him. When Jesus died on the cross, he bore the rebellion and judgment of God. Our rebellion, God's judgment. So that we might have peace with God. But it's only possible if you accept his peace terms. What are his peace terms? They're simply this. To repent, which means to admit your rebellion. To admit you've gone your own way, not God's way. And to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It means to lay down your arms, to submit to the King, to allow him to reign in your life. Writing to the Christians in Corinth, the Apostle Paul reminds them, and as of God's peace terms, he says, notice the seriousness, we implore you, we plead with you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's in some ways a very simple message, but also a very sobering message. I simply ask you, you may have been here hundreds of times in the past, you may be here for the first time this evening, have you accepted God's peace terms? Have you laid down your arms, given up your rebellion? Is Jesus your King, your Lord, or does he still weep over you this evening here in Charlotte Chapel because you refuse to recognise and receive him? You see, the, the stakes are enormously high. There are all sorts of mistakes you can make in life and say, if only, but now. This is the ultimate. Bob comments again, when God sues for peace and his terms are rejected, only judgment remains. And the solemn warning of the Old Testament, repeated in the New Testament, is this. So as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's Hebrews 7. Quoting Psalm 95. The Holy Spirit says to us today, this is today. Today is God's day. Maybe today is your day, the day of salvation for you. Up till this point, you've been living under God's judgment like a prisoner on death row waiting final sentence. The Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you harden your heart, you come to a point where it can never be softened again, becomes set in concrete, cannot be moulded and changed. This is the message. Let me just say one, something finally in conclusion. Uh, we began with that day of mixed emotions this week in Australia. Uh, we've gone back 2,000 years to a day of mixed emotions on Palm Sunday. But I want to remind you finally there will be a final day of mixed emotions. You see, the king is coming back after a long time. But the king is coming. King Jesus will return to earth a second time to be crowned king of kings and lord of lords. And the first chapter of the last book of the Bible, Revelation, describes the scene and it says, for some people it will be a time of weeping. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen.
When Christ returns, it will be a time of incredible sadness and mourning for those who have rejected him. But for others, it will be a time of great celebration and rejoicing. Revelation 19. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him the glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Revelation 19, 6-7. You get the picture? It's going to be a big wedding celebration. When Christ returns, it will be like the biggest wedding celebration of all time. And those who are invited to the wedding celebration who are present will have the most amazing reception for eternity. It's a biblical picture. Now, what would it be for you? The last chapter of the last book in the Bible, Revelation 22, ends with a wedding invitation. Did you know that? The Bible ends with a wedding invitation? Here it is, and I conclude with this. <coughs> the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of eternal life. You thirsty? Needy? God extends an invitation to you. He says, Here's the wedding invitation. They're going out throughout the world today through our mission family, through the gospel on radio and in Fortune by literature, every possible means. The wedding invitations are going out throughout the world and you have an opportunity to respond and say, yes, I want to be there. It's a free... Did you notice what it says? There's no charge. Let him take the free gift of the water of life that will satisfy forever. That's the final invitation of Scripture. There's nothing else. There's no other promises after that. Simply finishes by saying, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. Amen, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with God's people. Amen. That's the end of the Bible. It's the end of the story. Nothing else to come. Nothing better. Nothing greater. Final invitation. So I simply ask you this evening, is Jesus your king? Have you laid down your arms? Have you accepted the invitation? You can do it this evening. In fact, you'd be foolish not to. A, because you may not get another opportunity. But B, because your heart may become so hardened that you'll no longer be interested and God will no longer speak to you in the same way again. I just say that, it's just a fact. I need to tell you that. Because Jesus weeps when we reject him and go our own way. So let's just conclude by praying together and seeking God's help.